0: Father, as we come to your holy word, as we looked into your scriptures this morning, Father, we want to pray that you will speak to us, not through our own imaginations, not through our own experiences, but through your holy scriptures. Open your word to us and open us to your holy word. In Jesus' name, Amen. English writer Virginia Woolf was perhaps one of the most greatest novelists of last century. One of the lesser known novels is called An Unwritten Novel. Novel. The story revolves around a female narrator who was travelling on a train from London to the southern coast. This female narrator was a people watcher. She was interested in watching people on the train. She noticed that many of the fellow passengers were either not looking at her and avoiding eye contact or looking at something else. Everyone except for one woman. This woman was sitting across this female narrator and she was just staring ahead. The narrator tries to imagine what kind of a life uh, this uh, person sitting across of her uh, was having. And as the, as the train continues on the journey, the narrator began to imagine for herself the kind of life this woman sitting across her was living. She even calls her Minnie Marsh. And just basing on the looks, the narrator concludes that Minnie perhaps was unmarried, childless, and she was going to visit her sister-in-law at Eastbourne. And the narrator thought that Minnie must have committed some kind of a crime and she had some secret to hide. That's why she was not looking at anyone on the train, she was just staring forward. Perhaps she had a dark secret that she was carrying Minnie perhaps in her younger days when she was taking care of her own baby brother. She was negligent and as a result the baby brother died of scathing water while she was trying to bathe her. As the narrator was trying to reimagine the life that Minnie Marsh was having, the train suddenly came to a stop at the station called Eastburn. And the narrator was expecting that Minnie would not be met by anyone. But she was wrong. There was a young man that came to the platform, perhaps a son that came to Minnie. And she perhaps wasn't childless after all. And she perhaps wasn't heading off to visit her sister-in-law. The female narrator got it all wrong. Perhaps she was just simply imposing her own loneliness, her own hurts upon the woman sitting across of her. Sometimes we do that to God too. We look at God and instead of finding out what God is really like, we impose our imaginations, our own experiences upon God. Some of us grow up in families whereby we have fathers who are negligent and distant and we impose it upon God. And we say that God perhaps is like our dads. He's he's emotionalist. He is emotionally aloof. He doesn't care. He's distant. Some of us who have been hurt by friends before, so-called friends, and we begin that God is like that too. Yeah, 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 he may be good right now, but wait till troubles come, wait till you have an argument, wait till when you have a fight, then he will throw his true colors. There are many times we impose our own imaginations even upon our own friends too. Instead of finding out who they are and what they actually think, we impose our own hurts upon our friends and we think of them as this way and that way. And the more we allow these hurts to marinate in our thoughts, the image of our friend, the image of God, becomes darker and darker and darker. What is the solution? The solution is to not let our own experiences, our own imaginations, control who God is. But rather, let us find out who God is from Holy Scripture, from what He says He is. We are in the second sermon in our book of Ezra uh, in our study of the book of Ezra, and Ezra chapter one verses five to eleven tell us that we shouldn't impose our perceptions on God. Rather, we should look at God as He is, how He reveals Himself to us. In the previous sermon, we have looked at how God moved the heart of King Cyrus, the king of Persia, to issue an edict for the Jews to return to Jerusalem to build the temple. Now in chapter 1, verse 5, God does another moving again. And what does God move this time? Chapter 1, verse 5, God moves again, but this time He moves the hearts of the family family heads and the priests and the Levites. Let's Let's look at chapter 1, verse 5. Then the family heads, the Rasi of Judah and Benjamin, And the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. What does God want out of these uh, family heads or heads of the family and the priests to do? They are to lead the Jews to leave Babylon and return back to Egypt. Just like the way in which Moses and Aaron led Israel out of Egypt. Why do I say that? Look with me at verse 6. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts in addition to the free will offerings. You see, in the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 12, verses 33 to 36, just before Israel left Egypt, God moved amongst the hearts of the Egyptians so that before they left, the Egyptians gave the Israelites articles of gold and silver before they left. And here, and the Bible says that, uh, that the Israelites plundered Egyptians. Here the same thing is happening again. Before God's people leave Babylon and return back to Jerusalem to rebuild God's temple, God so moved among them, according to verse 6, that the neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with valuable gifts in addition to all the free will offerings. This is the second exodus that uh, the prophets uh, prophesy about that God once again will lead the Jews out of uh, of, uh, Egypt, but here it's Babylon, back to the land of His promise. But there is a big difference. In the first exodus, the whole excursion was led by Moses and Aaron, Moses being the leader and Aaron representing the priest and the Levites. Now this time around, it will not be headed by Moses, but who will it be headed by? Verse 5 tells us, by the Rasi. The heads of the families, and again the priests and the Levites. The heads of the families, right now, will become the leaders. They will hold the charge just like Moses did in the book of Exodus. In fact, this is a major theme, this is a major theme in the book of Ezra. Throughout Ezra's chapters one to six, there will be no charismatic leader. You won't read of a, a great leader like Moses or, or David or Solomon. Rather, it's a book of the people who are the leaders in the book of Ezra. They're the heads of the family, ordinary folks taking the mantle of leadership that was once entrusted to Moses, and they will be the ones that God will use. In fact, in verse 8, we're going to read of a man named Sheshbazzar. Uh, Sheshbazzar. Shesh is the son of Jehoiachin, one of the final kings of Judah. So in fact, he's of the royal line. Though he was no longer the king, he was still a royal line. Yet the Bible, the writer of Asra, never calls him a malak, a king. He's only simply called a nasi, a leader. Because the leader of the book of Azra is not a royal figure, not even a charismatic leader, but it's the people. This is why even uh, the scribe Ezra, the writer, doesn't show up until chapter 7. To us, it's just six chapters, and then you get Ezra coming in. But actually, chapters 1 to 6 span over a time of 80 years. So for 80 years, the leaders of the Jewish people were not some charismatic leader, but ordinary folks like you and I. What does this say about God? God is not a distant God. God is not an emotionless God. God is not a God that only selects a handful of people and uses them and the rest are just junk to him. The rest he doesn't care no 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 God is a God that is close to his people so close to his people that he uses ordinary folks to accomplish great and mighty things for him he calls us to be another Moses to lead his people out of exile this is not an emotional emotional lust God not a distant God yes we may have been hurt by our distant parents before we have been neglected and uh, let down by friends who abandoned us. But this is not a God of the Bible. The God of the Bible believes in ordinary people, believes in the Rashi of Israel, the heads of the families of Israel. And what does God want us to do as He calls us? to lead his people out of sin and slavery. Two things. We need to catch the vision of his greatness. What was the first exodus about? It was more than God bringing Israel out of Egypt. The exodus was to actually answer the question that Pharaoh first had of Moses when Moses first came to see him. What was Pharaoh's first question? That was the very first thing that was addressed. Pharaoh's first question was in Exodus chapter 2, verse 2. Who is the Lord that I shall obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. In the first Exodus, the whole point of the Exodus was God answering Pharaoh's question. Who is the Lord? And through the 10 plagues that God showed Pharaoh, God is actually saying to Pharaoh, listen this is who I am. I am greater than all the gods of Egypt combined. I am greater than you. If I want to destroy Egypt, I can destroy it any way I want. I can cause frogs to come and your nation will be destroyed. I can cause an angel of death to come and your sons, your firstborns, will be gone in a single night. You fear the night, I'm greater than the night. So the Exodus was to show the greatness of God over Pharaoh. And Moses was the mouthpiece to show Pharaoh the greatness of God. And this is what God calls us to do as God's people. What is our task as Moses version two? Our task is to show show the world, to show the world to catch a vision of the greatness of God. How does God establish His greatness here in Azra? Look with me at verse 7, Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem, and had placed in the temple of his God, Cyrus King of Persia brought, uh, uh, brought by Matthew Dreth. The treasurer who counted them to Sheshbazah, the prince of Judah. What the king of Babylon did was that um, he was the one that brought Israel into exile. He was the, 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 the second Pharaoh, if you want to put it that way. He conquered Jerusalem and defeated God's people many years ago. And uh, what the king of Babylon did was that as a show off of his victory, he carried away all the treasures. in God's temple. And this was in uh, 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 538-39 B.C. Uh, And many of the Babylonian armies were uh, 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 586-87 B.C. when when Israel fell, not 539, when uh, Israel fell. However, the the very big boast of king uh, of, of Babylon was that He wanted to show the world that he was the greatest king, that he has defeated God, that he had the power to defeat God and to bring all the treasures in God's temple to his own treasure, to his own palace. But little did he know that his little so-called greatness would dissipate in the year 539 BC because during the time uh, of uh, 539 B.C. the Babylonian armies were being deployed to attack at a battle in Opus. And as, as, as many of the Babylonian uh, armies were being deployed to Opus to fight this battle, very few of the Babylonian armies remained back in the city of Babylon. And Babylon thought that they were safe despite the few soldiers in the cities because they have always relied upon the protection of the river Euphrates. But unbeknownst to the Babylons, the Persians had a way to divert the paths of the waters of this river Euphrates. And uh, within the time frame of one night, as they have diverted the waters, the Persians entered Babylon. And you no need to understand that since there were very few soldiers left in Babylon, because many of them were deployed to fight a battle elsewhere, the Persians actually defeated the so-called powerful Babylons within a night. And within a night, the kingdom of Babylon fell to the Persians. What was, that? God's hand was actually behind all of this to show the Persians To show the Babylons, you are not as great after all. Just like Pharaoh in the past, your greatness is only temporary and it was given by me. Within one night, I can defeat you and I can let your kingdom fall. And here God mentions it again, that the kingdom of Babylon is no more. The king of Persia now takes its place. And the king of Persia right now takes the treasures and gave them back to the Jews so that they can bring them with them into Israel once again. What then is our role? Our role is to be like the heads of the family to show the world, to catch the greatness of God and to tell the world that's how great our God is. He can defeat the Babylons in the night and within a few, the next few years, they are no more. What does this have to say to us? Do we see the greatness of God in our lives? we are called to testify to this greatness of God. Do we see the greatness of His presence in the midst of our own sufferings? Do we see the greatness of His own provision when our finances are low? Do we actually see the greatness of His leadership when all our hopes have vanished? Do we still trust Him? And our task is simple. Our task is not to defeat the Egyptians. Our task is not to fight the Babylonians. Our task is simply to speak of this greatness that, we've, that has captured our hearts and our imaginations. Do we do that? In the 17th century, there was a German pastor by the name of Martin Rinkert. Martin Rinkert. Uh, served in the walled town of Ellenburg during the horrors of the Thirty Years' War of 1618 and uh, 1648. Ellenburg became an overcrowded refuge for the uh, refugees around the, the, the time. And many of the fugitives that came into the city had suffered from famine and, started from, and many of them suffered from the plague. At the beginning of 1637, uh, the plate was very prominent across the city and because the city had four pastors, one pastor, when they saw the plate coming in and there were so many ensuing deaths, left his post and went to a healthier area to live and serve. Pastor Rinkert himself officiated the funeral of the other two pastors. That means that he was the only pastor left in that city and during that time he conducted the services for at least 40 to 50 funerals a day because of the pestilence and because of the famine and because of the plague 40 to 50 people die a single day and may of that year his own wife died by the end of the year the refugees Had to be buried in trenches without services, and because there was no plot of land, no plots of land left. Yet, living in such a city dominated by death, Pastor Rinkit wrote these words as a prayer for his children to offer to God. He was actually using these words to send to his children so that they could pray to God. And these words are thus Now thank we all our God with hearts and hands and voices, who wondrous things had done, in whom this world rejoices, who from our mother's arms had led us in our way with countless gifts of love and still is ours, ours today. Pastor Winkert, despite the fact that the whole city was dying, despite that the people were leaving in droves, saw the greatness of God still, and he believed it, he caught it, and he spoke and wrote about it. That's our task. Secondly, what's our task? Our task is not only just to capture the greatness of God and to speak of it, but to put this greatness to the test. God wants to put this greatness to the test in our lives. I'm currently taking guitar lessons and most of the lessons my teacher will try to impart on me, to me, some uh, music theory. Every lesson he will introduce some theory of music and relating to guitar playing. Then he would test me out by giving me a piece to play so to know whether I have grasped the concept that he has just taught me. Sometimes God does that to us. He not only teaches us truth but He allows circumstances to so happen so that we can test it out, whether we have actually learned the truth. So what's the test? Verse 6, All the neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goats and livestock, and with valuable gifts in addition to all the free will offering. Those who actually saw the greatness of God And how God had moved during Ezra's time by removing the Babylonians in such a swift and quick fashion actually did something about the greatness of God. What did they do? They became generous. They believed in God's greatness so much that they gave. They gave articles of silver and gold. They gave gold goods and livestock. They gave valuable gifts. They gave free will offerings to God's people so that they can build the temple of God. What is the test that you have actually grasped the greatness of God? Your generosity. Your generosity. If you really believe that God is so great that He will provide food on your table, then food is not so important because He will provide it the next morning and you can give it away. If you really believe that God is the leader in your, in, in, in your funding, you can give it away to help people who are in need because you have actually believed that God is great. If you really, really believe that God is so great that He is your leader in your steps in life, you can't, you can still be happy and rejoicing even when you don't know the way. Why? Because the test is, I have believed that God will provide. So this is the test. If we really believe in the greatness of God, are you generous with your finances? Are you ready to give because you know that God will provide even if you empty your own coffers? The greatness of God is not just a theme we sing in a worship song or something we we, we tacked on on an Instagram post or something we just say or post it on banners. Rather, if we truly grasp the greatness of God, our hands will be opened, our wallets will be empty. In my former church, we celebrated the Holy Communion every Sunday. Often the ladies would cut up bread more than we actually required. So instead of throwing over the leftover breads, we found a way of feeding them to the birds. So usually on a Sunday afternoon, I would take the leftover bread and throw them in our backyard and birds of all kinds would come to eat the bread. There was a pigeon that would come to eat this bread. And after he had his share, he doesn't leave. He just chases the other birds away. And sometimes he would even uh, use its, its beak to peck on the other birds, telling them to shoot. Or he'll just push the smaller birds away because he wants the bread all to himself. He's like a sumo wrestler in the bird world. He wants all the food to himself and he chases and kicks everybody away. Why was this pigeon showing such antisocial behavior? Well, he was simply afraid that the bread would run out, so he needs to hoard it all to himself and chases the birds away. And every time when I see this happen, I will try to tell the bird that you don't have to chase your friends away. There'll be more bread to come. You don't have to hoard them to yourself. There's lots of bread coming your way. You don't have to hoard them to yourself. But does the bird get it? No. The pigeon doesn't believe in my greatness to provide. He doesn't believe that I have more bread to throw to him. That's why he's selfish. That's why he doesn't share. That's why he hoards the bread, the pieces of bread to himself. But if the pigeon somehow knew about my greatness, that I had pieces of bread, more than he could ever eat in his lifetime to dispense, would he chase the birds away? No. He would freely give them. He would allow the other birds to eat with them. He would invite the other pigeons to come to eat with him if he only knew my greatness in providing. Many a times we are like the pigeon too. We are so scared of our tomorrows. We are so scared that there will not be bread on the table. That's why we become selfish. That's why we hoard things to ourselves. That's why we, 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 we lie awake at night trying to hold on to things and trying to scare away people who might take away the things that are important to us. But if we really grasp the goodness of God, the greatness of His power of provision, we won't do that. The greatness of God is not just a theological concept, not just a slogan or words taken from a worship song, not words that you put on a fridge magnet or on Instagram, but they should be lived. And the test is, your hands. If you really believe in the greatness of God, your hands will be opened and not tied to the things of this world. Father, we pray for open hands right now. Open hands because our hearts have been opened to your greatness. The God who once rescued Israelites are the hands of Pharaoh, the God who can rescue Israel, the Jews out of Babylon, the God who can rescue us out of death and the sin through our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross is far greater than all the gods of this world. Yes, he can provide. Yes, he can lead. And because he can provide, and because he can lead, and because there is always hope to those who cling on to him, our hands need not be tight. We can let go of things. We can let go of money. We can let go of possessions. We can let go of I'll need to know, I'll need to want to control. Father, our hands are tight because we know the greatness of God just in our minds. We have not let that permeate our hearts in our lives. So Holy Spirit, I pray in these moments that you will come Father, we are in your holy presence. This is a holy moment, friends. Holy moment. Holy Spirit, come. And let the Spirit, Lord God, fill us again with your greatness. Fill us again with your greatness. So the hands will become open. So that even when we do not own anything, even when our future looks bleak, we know that it doesn't matter. Our God is great and greater than our circumstances, greater than the food on our table. Open our hearts so that our hands will be open, so that our wallets will be happy to do your work for your kingdom's sake and for the greatness of who your son is. Amen.